like intrepid explorers, we have journeyed through 150 songs of praise, that kind of feature in the middle of your Bible. We haven't done every single one, but we've done a lot of them. In fact, we've spent quite a few weeks on the really, really good ones. Hopefully, you've marveled at some of the beautiful praises um, that have featured in it. They've uh, quickened our hearts and inspired our spirits. I loved spending uh, many, many weeks on Psalm 23, this wonderful expression of trust in a heavenly father who will uh, act like a good shepherd. As well as the peaks, we visited a few possible troughs. We've wrestled with a few unusual Hebrew words that haven't got an English equivalent. We've looked at some foreign concepts that are found uh, in that more sort of agricultural society that Israel was when the Psalms was written. And we've also looked at some troubling ideas. And these difficult words, these foreign concepts and difficult ideas, they've tested us in our faith. You know, we we believe this is God's word and yet we come across stuff that seems strange and alien and almost the antithesis of what Jesus had to say. I don't know whether you remember the end of Psalm 137, but I was fascinated as I went through it to try and explain it. And then the different conversations I had with people that wanted to um, sort of take the idea further and, and explore some of the ideas that were contained within. We haven't shied away from the difficult passages. Today, we are going to look at the very final psalm of this incredible book. I think it's taken us about two years to get to this point. Some of you thought it would never come, and maybe one or two of you would have been happy for it to go on further. Perhaps we can just start again, maybe. Now, Psalm 150 isn't the most provocative psalm. I don't find it the most elegant one, and it's not obviously the most climatic. You don't reach it and go, oh, it was all leading to this. But it is an excellent exclamation mark. It seems an excellent exclamation mark to the book and to this series that we've been going on for a couple of years. So if you have a Bible, turn to Psalm 150. It says this. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his acts of power. Praise him for his surpassing greatness. Praise him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise him with the heart and lyre. Praise him with tambourine and dancing. Praise him with the strings and pipe. Praise him with the clash of cymbals. Praise him with the resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Those with keen eyes and good memories will see that it starts off with this phrase, 
praise the Lord. And if you uh, remember uh, a couple of weeks back, you'll be reminded that this praise the Lord that we find in English is actually the word hallelujah. Can I have a hallelujah from the crowd? You know, I realise it's a little bit cold in here and uh, um, we're going to try and uh, uh, keep going nonetheless. This hallelujah wasn't just a, a throwaway word and it doesn't appear much in the Old Testament. In fact, it is confined to Psalms and it seems that hallelujah was a deliberate and holy call for the whole congregation to come together and worship God. Come together to worship this King of Heaven uh, whose uh, glories filled the skies. It has this hallelujah where the yah at the end is God's name. It's kind of a shortened version of Yahweh. And this was the name that God had revealed to Moses. This was the name that when Moses gone, you know what, I don't really want to face up to the Egyptian empire. I don't want to face up to Pharaoh. I don't want to face up to the military might of this uh, massive uh, empire. And God said, I am sending you. You've got nothing to fear, nothing to worry about. This Yah sent them forward to uh, obliterate slavery and oppression and bring them into liberty and abundance. And it's something worth praising the Lord for. And every time they said this, hallelujah, they would remember the name of the God who liberated them. And hallelujah starts Psalm 150 and it ends it. It's like a bookend on each, uh, uh, on each part. But that is not enough for our psalm writer this morning. The uh, Hebrew words hallelujah feature 11 times throughout that. Again, it's praise, praise, praise. There is an instruction, there is an expectation that the people's response will be something of adoration of the king. All those poems, all those songs, all those lyrics that have gone before come together in this final final psalm. This is the conclusion. This is the concise way to summarise all those 149 psalms that went before it of, Oh, soul, why are you downcast? Oh, uh, what should I do in this situation? The enemy are at the gates. All the, how great creation is. You know me when I was in my mother's womb. All the climax of that comes in Psalm 150, where it says, praise the Lord. You don't know what to do in life. You don't know uh, a way forward. There seems to be this uh, repeated emphasis on praise the Lord. After all that is said and done, every reflection on creation, every reflection on your own troubles and issues, every reflection on sickness and in health, every reflection on your past and future, every reflection on your poverty or your wealth, there is this climax of just praise the Lord. Now the psalm begins by saying, calling folk out 
to call out God's holy name. And the location, um, and the, the Hebrew word is kodesh, and your Bibles will have it translated differently if we've got a range of different translations here. Some will have the holy place, some will have sanctuary, some may even have uh, uh, something else. But there is this word here that says, you know, you praise the Lord in this very specific venue. As, he, as Israel came out of Egypt, they had this tent of meeting, this tent of worship, this tabernacle. And f- so for them, as they traveled out into the promised land, this sanctuary would be in this tent. But then when Israel settled in the promised land, when they settled in Canaan, this Kadesh, this sanctuary, this was this God-ordered building in Jerusalem that David was forbidden for building because he was a man of war and his son Solomon was given the privilege of erecting. And there's some uh, very precise instructions as to how it was to be erected. And then Kadesh was that sanctuary. But you and I are in a difficult place. You see, Solomon's temple was destroyed by the Babylonian Empire in uh, 587 BC. We can't worship in that originally erected temple. And then another one was erected to replace it. And guess what? The Romans destroyed that one as well in 70 AD. And so we've got to a place where we haven't got a tabernacle. We haven't got either the first or the second temple that was built by the Jews. And they say, well, have we got no sanctuary? What are we to do to praise the Lord? Well, there's wonderful solution to that because you see the idea of sanctuary, the idea of Kadesh has been redefined for you and I. If you've got a Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9, for we are fellow workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wider builder and someone else is building on it, but each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives... The builder will receive a reward. But if it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved. Even though only as one escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? Everyone say temple. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives among you? If anyone destroys God's temple... God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. Everyone say together. Okay, 
Some of your minds have wandered, I understand. Everyone say, together. together. Excellent. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours. Everyone say, all things are mine. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, and that's Peter, um, as we would know him. Or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future. Everyone say, all are mine. All are yours, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. Paul's words are forever careful, and he just goes through a whole range of subjects here that um, I could very easily uh, compose multiple sermons in it. Um, I'm sure if we went back to our 1 Corinthians uh, uh, sermon many moons ago that, that we, um, we spent a while here. Um, it's not at all uh, my point, but he has this concern for the Corinthians that they are dividing themselves by which particular speaker or which particular favourite theology they have. And so they are causing divisions in the church by saying, I follow this person and I follow this uh, emphasis. And Paul is saying, this is ridiculous. We have the same foundation of Jesus. We have got no business dividing ourselves up along different lines. And uh, in today's world of um, sort of international speakers and all sorts of media out there, we could spend quite a lot of time sort of dissecting what it means for that for us today. But I want you to hear this morning, most importantly, that Paul calls the believers together God's building or God's temple. Elsewhere, he may refer to the individual as God's temple. But here, Paul is saying the church is God's temple. When we congregate, that is God's temple. For you and I, now, is us being God's temple. And uh, he has, uh, he's not mincing his words. When he says, anyone that messes with these congregations, it is bad news. When you mess with unity, when you mess with the love and fellowship of the saints, it is bad news. If you know anything about this group of Christians in the city of Corinth, you will know that they are at best messy. They were sexually immoral, they were selfish, they were arrogant, they were divisive and greedy. The bit that's often read out in church meetings for the communion supper is actually a warning saying some of the posh rich people get drunk and some of the poor people go hungry. And uh, we kind of, and you'll find that pastors and uh, elders, they carefully extract, extract the bit that sounds positive. But actually, the whole chapter is just bashing the Corinthians for their ignorance and for their almost unchristlikeness. And if you look elsewhere, you will find that they were taking each other to court, that they were 
uh, accommodating sexual practices that have no business even in the pagan world, let alone in the Christian church. And yet, as we despair of the Christians in Corinth, Paul looks them all squarely in the eye and says, collectively, you are God's inner sanctuary. You are the holy of holies. You are the Kodesh. You are God's sanctuary. And uh, a couple of chapters later in chapter 5, Paul says, when you assemble, the power of Jesus is with you. That power of Jesus that uh, raised him from the dead, that healed people, that saw blind eyes see, that um, cleansed the leper, that restored uh, the outsider. And uh, Paul says, when you come together, Jesus' power is with you. There is something potent and important and critical about coming together. And this was not because the Corinthians had any measure of self-control. It's not because their morality was good. It was not because their lives, Monday through to Saturday, were bastions of Christ-likeness. It was nothing of the sort. They would have failed every test and qualification to be seen as God's temple if their behaviour had anything to bear on it. Paul calls these Christians at Corinth God's holy place because that's where God's spirit dwelt. It was God's spirit that was the definition of whether something was God's sanctuary or not. And friends, I don't know what sort of week you have, whether you feel that, you know what, you have learned from Jared Cooper this week and you are a pretty impressive Christian and that uh, people just need to walk in front of you when they see the light of Christ shine out of your eyes or whether you've had a miserable week that... um, you haven't read your Bibles, that you haven't prayed, that uh, you have just failed at every uh, moral hurdle that you've uh, come across. If we have called upon Jesus to save us, if we have committed ourselves to him being Lord in our lives, we are in the same place as these Christians in Corinth. We are together God's sanctuary. God's Kadesh. It isn't a status that comes and goes. You know, if Tim, if Tim plays really loudly and well, and we have a few people that are feeling enthusiastic, and you know, they've had bonuses in the week, and they're really up for praising God, and there is a vibrancy in the meeting, we are no more Kadesh because of that. And if all of us have had a miserable week, we've had coughs and colds, the washing machine has uh, blown up, the car is abandoned on the side of the M23, broken down, if our relationships have gone to pot, if our week has been miserable and Tim's trying his best to play out the front and the rest of us are really impressed with ourselves that we've even mustered to come together let alone stand up and worship. We are no less Kadesh because of that. We are God's sanctuary because of God's bestowal of his spirit. And that is true week in, week out. Whether you feel like speaking in tongues constantly or whether you are just hoping that the service finishes and that you can go home and... 
um, feel sorry for yourself. God's spirit is in us and he's in us particularly collectively as, a, as the church and we should be encouraged by that. And so Psalm 150 calls out to each one of us. It calls out to us individually and collectively to worship God. Psalm 150 says, worship God in the sanctuary. We are God's sanctuary. And so Psalm 150 says, you know what? Make room in your church services for singing. When we come together, when we say, you know what? Life, I'm going to demarcate 10.30 on a Sunday morning as an opportunity to praise the Lord, you are doing what Psalm 150 says. You are complying with what God wants for your life. When you make room between sort of 10.30 and 11.15 for praise and worship, you are doing exactly what Psalm 150 is calling you to. And we don't need a special building. You don't need special clothes and you don't need special words all these things are um, accompaniments that I really like that we can do without I don't have to have robes and a hat and a title and neither does Tim this building doesn't have to have a steeple and a cross on the top it doesn't have to Uh, uh, be specially purposed for worship. And you folk can be normal as well. You don't have to be sort of living in the desert, living on locusts or uh, living in a monastery somewhere. You are normal people saved by grace and then we come together uh, and enjoy worship. You don't have to have given all your money away during the week. You don't have to have read scripture back to front uh, every day, Monday to Saturday. You come in your brokenness, in uh, your worry, and God's spirit makes you God's temple, and we worship out of that. And then together, hopefully, we release our appreciation of God. I know most of you here this morning and I know speaking to you individually that we all have a profound gratitude for what God has done. You know, when push comes to shove, when all the uh, distractions of life are put aside, you go, you know what, I am thankful to God. You know, I am thankful that I'm saved by grace. I thank you, uh, Lord, that you've uh, written my name in the book of life. I am upset my car is... dead at the side of the M23. I am upset that my heating's gone. I am upset that uh, uh, my dog has got scabies. (laughs) But I will praise the Lord. And so this morning, I just want to encourage you from Psalm 150. When we come together, it is good to praise God. It is good to praise God whether we've had a fantastic week or a bad week. It is good to praise God Um, whether life has gone sweetly or it has gone badly because we are doing exactly what God longs for us to do. And we spent um, a few weeks ago just remembering the joys of worship, how it is a good thing to do. We are calling 
something right that is right, that it transforms our inner being, um, and that it's a beautiful thing. And so this morning, I just encourage you, when Tim picks up his guitars, when Rachel and Sam tentatively grab the mics, not really wanting the limelight, but knowing that it's good to have some backing vocals, that it's a good and right and proper thing. It is fitting for us to do that. And so Psalm 150 ends this book of Psalms with call out, vocalise what God has done. Say to him how much he means to you. If any of us have any sort of relationship in our lives that is ongoing, all of us know they have to be worked at. We have to say out loud, I love you, I appreciate you, I'm glad you did that for me. And Psalm 150 calls us, now is the time to do that. Now, I'm not sure whether I've used this illustration recently. Um, I, I go on about it a bit too much. Um, but my family and I went into Horsham recently, went into Horsham Town, and we uh, went through a suburb of Horsham on the way there. And as we passed it, we passed a particular road in this suburb of Horsham. And every time I go past it, I am uh, not necessarily overcome, but I certainly feel a mixture of feelings and flashbacks. Yes, it is that bad. You see, my r- folks on a Tuesday at seven o'clock, seared into my brain, would drive me to organ lessons. Now, some of you are like, oh, that's delightful that your parents love music so much that they want to impart that skill to you. For years, and I mean years, this wasn't like, a, like my son deciding I want to take up taekwondo and then leaving the second week because it was too difficult or too hard or too boring. For years, I applied myself to the musical instrument of the organ. I practiced. My brother, who is a gifted musician and excels at everything, I practiced (laughs) ten times more than he did. I suffered. I failed again and again at playing that musical instrument. I failed at home every day, and I failed every week at this poor, long-suffering lady's house. Later on, um, when I was in my late teens, I thought perhaps I'd got over that, that that mental scarring, you know, had healed up, that the tissue was no longer apparent, that perhaps I could learn. And so my brother, amongst all his other instruments, he had a mandolin that he wasn't playing that point. So I decided to deliberately apply myself to the mandolin. I played for weeks and weeks and weeks, practices it for hours. I could barely master um, this one song, what Daddy's Going to Buy You a Mockingbird. And I just hate that song so much now. It's incredible. <laughs> and what you realise, if you play a stringed instrument, your fingers get cut to shreds. So I, as I applied myself again and again that I will master the art of music 
my fingers develop these nasty, ugly calluses that um, just seem to sort of pop out my skin and stay there. And it wasn't even worth it because I couldn't play this blessed thing at all. And I just ended up with these ugly, calloused hands. (coughs) Because of this attempt and repeated failed attempt at music, I have this profound and deep respect for those that have successfully applied themselves to musical excellence. It is something that normally my stubbornness would have overcome. You know, there's very few subjects at stall just through stubbornness that I wasn't able to get somewhere in them, but music has just not been one of them. And uh, this sort of... um, Uh, This burden, uh, this baggage, is probably one of the reasons why our youngest son is called Miles. Um, Because I will listen to uh, the albums Kind of Blue and Sketches of Spain by uh, Miles Davis. And normally you need words in a song to make them interesting, but this guy, Miles Davis, he just plays this beautiful music um, that again and again has captivated my heart, that I found more beautiful than any uh, physical art work of art that I've ever encountered. And I know from personal experience that this guy, Miles Davis, has endured blood, sweat and tears to get that point. I've got uh, a a, a biography of his at home that talks about some of the turmoil he uh, encountered to get to that place. And it's not just hard work. It's creativity, it's dreams, it's application, it's improvisations, and it's uh, rebellion. Again and again, uh, just pushing the boundaries, this guy. What has all this got to do with Psalm 150, some of you are wondering. Today's psalm, like many before it, puts music in the middle of praise. When we shout out, I love God lots, it seems that God quite likes it to be accompanied by musicians. And you know what? I can't sing and I certainly can't play, so I have to leave that to someone else. Right in the middle of practising praising God, he desires and longs for an art in the middle. And I really like this, that we don't just chant I love God we don't just repeat a liturgy of I love God but there is supposed to be lyrics and melody to it and every musical instrument imaginable to the psalmist is brought in in Psalm 150 we have this litany of instruments that the psalmist goes, yes, add that, yes, add the trombone, yes, add the organ and the piano and the flute and the violin, yes, add the cymbals and the tambourine and the triangle, yes, add the uh, uh, bongos and the drums and every other instrument, just cram them all in. And Psalm 150 doesn't imagine a little acoustic, um, a little acoustic um, set by the campfire. It goes, every single instrument I can imagine, I want it brought in and I want the stage full so people are falling off the stage. 
And this isn't just a group of people playing the, the triangle. You know, when I was at school and you have the nativity and that, what, what should we give Kev? Well, we can't let him sing and we can't let him play in any instruments and he can't act. What are we going to do? He can play the triangle at the back and he will get that wrong, but that's okay. It won't destroy the whole production. Psalm 150 doesn't imagine a bunch of Kevins hitting the triangles badly. It imagines a symphony of musicians with calloused fingers who have endured late-night music practice sessions, who have uh, endured all sorts of tortured scales and natural gifting. And I love the idea that the end of the longest book in Scripture has all these musicians that aren't necessarily Bible scholars, but God has given them the gift of music. He has given them more than just the gift of music, the ability to apply themselves again and again and again. And more than that, not only a natural gifting, not only hard work, but a desire to serve the other people. And what we find in Psalm 150 is a climax of people falling over themselves, saying, God has given me this gift of music. He has given me, uh, um, and I have worked hard at it, and I really want to serve other people through it, and I want to exalt God as well. And that is what Psalm 150 is full of. That is why I love this list of instruments, because it reminds me of how I can't get involved, but I can marvel at the people that do. This worship in Psalm 150 requires every ounce of the musician's emotions, of their strength, of their mind, and of their gifts. And I think as we look upon that, as we hear it, we should be inspired. You may be musically inept. Tim may never ask you to get anywhere near a microphone. But that doesn't disqualify you from serving God in a way that helps us all worship. Turn in your Bibles to the last Bible reference, Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, verse 32. Now I commit to you, God, and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And there's this personal note. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs And the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, everyone say hard work. work. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus Himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. 
There is, and I'm encouraged by this, there is no evidence that the Apostle Paul became accomplished at the mandolin or the organ. Um, but he worked incredibly hard in other ways. There is no doubt that his hands would have been calloused by the hard work of his tent making and of his journeys and of his shipwrecks and of his uh, victim of riots and imprisonments. This guy knew what it was to let his body be abused for the purpose of others. He has these calluses on his fingers and in his spirit that were there to bless others. When the opportunity came, he was there to serve. And I hope that as a chorus of praise rings in our ears from others, as we sit or stand in this hall and we hear other people thank God for all they've done, that we ask ourselves how we've been involved. How are we serving diligently? If we haven't got calluses on our fingers from serving, then that seems to me a problem. Because Paul champions hard work, and I love the different references he has to other people that he says, you know, they've worked hard in the gospel. We are finishing this two-year trek through the peaks and troughs of these songs. And I really hope you don't reduce them to nice tracks that you can listen to on Spotify. They are profound outworkings of mature uh, believers who really want to grapple with what it means to love God. The Psalms were written by people who expended all themselves in that longing to know God better than ever before. Who wrote down, who played, who improvised, who constructed melodies for the service of other people being helped as well. Where they bent all their personal experiences into words and melodies so that you and I could benefit from them and find ourselves words perhaps that we haven't found for ourselves and sing them out to God in pleas, in petitions, in gratitude. And when we praise God, we grow because of it. When we praise God through our service and through our worship, we grow, we mature, we are suddenly less susceptible to the troubles of life, to sickness and guilt and to uh, uh, poverty. We become bigger people because of it. And we bless others. In the very simplest terms, when you are singing out loud and lifting your hands and and speaking in tongues, you are reminding everyone around you that uh, there is someone worth making all this noise and fuss about. And when we do that, 
God gets the adoration he deserves because God is remarkable and beautiful and lovely and holy and gracious and forgiving and glorious. And when we praise him, we are doing no more than he deserves. We are doing exactly what we should be doing. We are fitting into creation exactly as God planned. Please bow your heads. Heavenly Father, I thank you for every single person that has come this morning uh, with the understanding um, that together we are your sanctuary, that your Holy Spirit is here, that this is an important thing to do. Lord God, we thank you for Psalm 150. Lord God, I pray that praising you would always be important to us. Lord God, I pray that we would uh, always value and seek to assist and serve this body of saints. And Lord God, as we remember the hard work of musicians who serve us in worship, Lord God, I pray that each of us um, would know that hard work that Paul talks about in serving those people around us. Lord God, I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.